Gracious Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, we are so grateful even for this week where you have been so gracious to us. Lord, it's amazing and mind-boggling to imagine that you have tenderly cared for each person in this room by your grace personally and that you still do that even with your whole universe that your power is unlimited and unrivaled in the fact that not even one molecule is a maverick molecule in our universe wow you are a great awesome majestic god and we thank you that you have given us your word your self-revelation that we would know you that we would know who you are in your infinite glory and majesty that we would understand who we are in the light of who you are that we would understand our need for a Savior, every single one of us, from the womb. We are by nature sinners. And Lord, we deserve hell and condemnation. And yet you, because of your great love, you sent your Son Jesus to come into the world to die for sinners, to pay for sins, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. And Lord, He has ascended. He is sitting at your right hand. One day He is returning. And Father, we... Rejoice in that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And for those who are not, Father, may today be the day of salvation. May the day today be the day where they are reconciled to you by faith in Jesus alone. Father, may this time of preaching and meditation and reflection upon really deep things, Lord, the things of eschatology, the things of the last days. We know that these things are things that you have revealed in your word for our comfort and encouragement as believers, for our warning for those who have not put their faith in Jesus. Lord, may you bear much fruit through this message today as we reflect upon the implications of what our Lord Jesus says here in Mark 13. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We began looking at this great chapter this last Sunday, a week ago. Concerning the doctrine of eschatology, or really it's centered on the issues of eschatology, the last days, the end times. So if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, stand with me. Mark chapter 13, and I want to read verses 1 through 8. Mark 13, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's Word. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, you've heard the statement, hindsight is twenty twenty. perhaps. Um, we say that with reference to something in our past, as you know, that perhaps at the time in our past, we didn't see things clearly as we now do in the present with regards to that particular situation or circumstance. And I'm sure that this would be true of our Lord's disciples later on in Acts, in the book of Acts, as they unfold their ministry and their mission that the Lord Jesus charges them with. That as they looked back in the book of Acts to Jesus' words in Mark 13, they would have been able to say something along those lines. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We didn't have an accurate picture, and we do now, about future things. And obviously rejoicing in those future things now as Jesus outlined them for them in, in Mark chapter 13. And I emphasize this, I mention this because I don't want you to miss this. As we mentioned last week, and we began to look at this last week and think and reflect on this. Here in Mark 13, you have Jesus' disciples expecting Jesus, whom they believe in their hearts to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, even though many of the multitudes had their doubts, of course. 
They were expecting Jesus, who they, who they know to be the Messiah, to, to establish his kingdom on earth now and in the immediate. If you look at Luke 19.11, it says there that they, the disciples were supposing that the kingdom was going to appear immediately. This is their expectation. This is their anticipation. But Jesus, in essence, exposes their ignorance on the timing and nature of the last days and really equips them for what is to take place at the end of days. And of course, we saw last week that he reveals to them not only that they should anticipate the destruction of that glorious temple of Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of worship and Israel's glory and hope the temple had been for centuries. Not only that they should anticipate the wiping out of that temple, but also that they should anticipate his departure, but then his future return to establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus begins to speak these words to his disciples. See, for us, it's important for us to understand this. Looking back at all of this and reading Mark chapter 13, for instance, we know Jesus departed. We know that he departed after his resurrection. We know that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We know that he promised to return in Acts chapter 1. And he gave the mission to his disciples and to his church to to witness concerning his name. But his disciples don't have a full concept of a departure and then of a second return here. They don't. Here their present worldview, in other words, is one singular coming of the Messiah. Not two with a long undefined interval in between. They don't understand this. And so Jesus embarks here on an explanation regarding these things in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And it's called that, as we saw last week, because Jesus is sitting at the top of the Mount of Olives when he gives this discourse. And it's from this location at twilight, at dusk, if you can picture this. Elevated some 150 feet above the temple, the Lord and His disciples can look down and across the Kidron Valley at the majestic, glorious temple of Jerusalem called Herod's Temple. It was a perfect bird's eye view of this majestic and glorious edifice. This is the strategic setting of the infamous Olivet Discourse. And it is important for us to keep note of that. First, I want to talk about some preliminary matters, I think, for us to consider even before we get into some of these verses, okay? First, I want you to keep in mind this, that the Olivet Discourse, exegetically, first and foremost, is Jesus' answer to the question of his disciples concerning Israel specifically and Israel's Messiah, specifically his return and his coming earthly kingdom, This is very important for us to understand. In other words, the Olivet Discourse is strongly Jewish in nature. You will notice, for instance, in verse 9, references to flogging and references to synagogues, etc. This is strongly Jewish in nature. Significantly, there is no mention here of the church. Also significant is that there's no mention of the rapture, by the way. And as we walk through these verses, we'll see why this is the case. And so first and foremost, please take note, Jesus' discourse is about Israel and Israel's Messiah, the events connected to the end of days. The focus is the end of days and the signs concerning the last days. Also, another preliminary matter is that the events described here are yet future. Yet future. A simple reading tells us that while we've seen glimpses and had foretaste, tastings of some of the things that we see in these events in Mark chapter 13, this is describing something of an epic proportion. Something that is cataclysmic. These events in verses 5 through 37. These are future events that are far different than anything we will ever see in the history of humanity. This is very important because there are some who take what we, who take what we call the preterist position on passages like these. You say, what in the world is that, Pastor Preterist? I'm glad you asked, okay? Preterist comes from a Latin word which means past. Past. And so preterists believe that most, 
if not all of the prophetic passages such as this one have already taken place in the past. Specifically, during the destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Here are two primary types of preterists, okay? And I think most, not all, can fall under these two major categories. There are full or extreme preterists who believe that all Bible prophecy concerning Jesus' resurrection, His second coming, and the eternal state have been fulfilled during the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And get this, in this view, Jesus came in the form of the Roman armies of the first century. And thus, we no longer should expect a return of Christ. We are already in the new heavens and already in the new earth, according to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. But then there are the partial or mild preterists. And these guys don't go as far. They believe that most, but not all, of the events described in the discourse have already taken place, but they do believe that we should still expect a physical, bodily return of Christ. And of course, everything that he brings. One of my heroes, the late R.C. Sproul, held to a version of this particular view, though he certainly affirmed a physical, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask, how do preterists, especially fool or extreme ones, arrive at their position? Well, first, they take terms in the Olivet Discourse like near and soon and quickly to mean that Jesus had to return in the immediate, within a few years or even a few decades of his words. However, it's important to note that those terms, near and soon and quickly and others, simply speak of eminency of the eminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come at any day was Jesus' point. Later on, he's going to exhort us in the Olivet Discourse, people of all ages, concerning the need to be prepared, to take heed, to be on guard. Thus, any generation, is his point, should live with a sense of expectancy, for these things could break out at any time. And so those terms speak of eminency. And second, one of their key verses that they used to support a preterist position is Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34, which says this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They say, see, Jesus was saying that that present generation of people who were living in his day, hearing those words, would not die until all these signs were seen by them. Thus, they already took place, these events. But generation... And Matthew 24, 34 is not saying that all of the events described here or in Matthew 24 and 25, the parallel account of this text, had to occur within a few years or decades either, as we're going to see. Listen, Jesus is speaking prophetically here about a generation yet future. That's his point. I like what one writer says, with, says quote, with these words i.e. the Olivet Discourse, Jesus, like other previous prophets, was projecting into the future within a prophetic context. He's speaking of the generation of people living when the future eschatological events of Matthew 24 began to occur. Whenever that would take place, that generation would be the ones who would witness the second coming of Christ to earth. End quote. I agree with this. I agree with that statement. You see, part of what's so difficult with prophecy is that initially, at first glance, so much of prophecy um, is difficult to determine the timing of it and specific aspects of the prophecy that's being given there. It's sort of like if we were to step outside and look at the mountain range on the hills of Burbank. It's like watching a mountain range from from a distance, from a mile away, if you will. And from far away, from a far perspective, it seems like all of those mountains are are the exact same distance away. But then when you drive there and you're amongst those mountains, you realize some of those mountains are a quarter of a mile away, a half mile away. That is the way prophecy is in Scripture. There's near fulfillment and then there's far fulfillment. And so that's part of what makes it difficult. Well, how do we know that the preterist position is not true? And this is important. How do we know that this is not true and that what Jesus describes here is distant future? Just got to look at the text. And I'm going to give you four examples of this. 
in Mark chapter 13, verse 6, it says that many would come claiming that they were the Messiah. That certainly wasn't true in the first century. We'll talk about the fact that we've seen glimpses of this, of course, in the last 2,000 years during the church age, but that wasn't prevalent in the first century. So this is speaking of something future as we're going to see. Mark chapter 13 and verse 10 says that the gospel must be preached to all the nations. That certainly didn't happen in the first century. Jesus has to be speaking about a future time. Also, the whole of Mark 13, hear this, is speaking of a cosmic, cataclysmic series of events that will be unprecedented. Never before seen in the history of mankind. And while things like the event of AD 70 was certainly horrible, thousands of Jews were killed, the temple was destroyed, the dispersion of the Jews took took place around that time, etc. As bad as AD 70 was, the events of Mark 13 are pointing to a future time when the devastation will be epic, unparalleled. It will reach unprecedented proportions and degrees. Perhaps most significant... Mark 13, verses 26 and following, describe a future time where everyone will see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming to glory, in glory with His holy angels. Amen? Everyone will see that. In Matthew 25, 46, the parallel account says that at that future time, the righteous will be ushered into eternal life. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, who've repented of their sins and by faith alone put their faith in Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior of their sins, they will be ushered into eternal life while the wicked, those who have rejected the sacrifice of Christ, have not put their trust in Christ, will be ushered into eternal punishment. In other words, universal judgment will take place. That certainly didn't happen in A.D. 70, did it? And so clearly, Jesus is speaking here of a future period of history that hasn't taken place yet. This is a unique time of suffering and devastation, beloved, like no other. It's sobering. It's comforting for us as believers, and yet it's sobering because of people that we know who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's a unique time. A time when all hell will break loose, loose, so to speak. The worst time in the history of the world. And so what is this unique period of time called, described here? It is the tribulation. The tribulation. Jesus specifically calls this in Matthew, calls it this in Matthew 24, 29. But immediately he says, after the tribulation of those days. He calls it the tribulation. In Matthew 24, 21, he refers, by the way, to the great tribulation. And we'll see the distinction later between the tribulation and then the great tribulation in Mark 13 and those parallel passages. The word for tribulation is the Greek word philipsis. It's a strong word which means oppression, affliction, suffering, tribulation. It's used in some context of being hemmed in on all sides. This is the tribulation, oppression, affliction in this particular period of time. And the tribulation, as we're going to see in messages ahead, is a seven-year period of time when all hell will break loose on earth, so to speak. It is the worst period of time in the history of the world. Other texts that speak of the tribulation is obviously the parallel accounts of Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, Outline specifics that will take place during the period of the tribulation and the great tribulation, by the way. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the infamous 70th week of Daniel. We're going to look at that passage most likely next week. Speaks of this period of time called the tribulation period. And so this is what Mark is descri- or Jesus is describing in verses 5 to t- through 23. The tribulation and the great tribulation. And if you're looking for a breakdown of the Olivet Discourse of verses 5 through 37. Here it is. Ready? Last week we saw verses 1 through 4, which really describe the beginning of the last days in the prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. We saw this last week. And then verses 5 through 23 speak of the tribulation. Verses 5 through 13 speak of the first three and a half years of tribulation. 
Verses 14 through 23 speak of the second three and a half years of what is known as the Great Tribulation. And this latter half of the Tribulation is even greater, more severe suffering, greater devastation than the first three and a half years of the Tribulation is what is known as the Great Tribulation. And that's even coupled with the coming of the Antichrist with a capital A. Now these first three and a half years of the Tribulation are described in the verses we're going to look at this morning or begin to look at. In Mark chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus says that these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. I love that imagery that our Lord uses. It is so helpful in understanding the Olivet Discourse. You know, my wife is my greatest hero on earth. For many reasons. I'm sure many of you husbands can say that. Okay? And one of those reasons that she's my greatest hero is that she gave birth to six children. Six children. Some of you didn't listen to that. Six. Five on earth, one in heaven. So all my love and respect, not only to my wife, but all of you ladies out there who have given birth to kids. Okay? And you will understand this. You know, I'm not a lady, as you can tell. And I'm not an expert in all of this. But I'll tell you what, watching my wife pregnant over time, I observed a number of things. And initially, when she was pregnant, she would get these preliminary contractions throughout the pregnancy called Braxton Hicks. You ladies can identify with this, right? Braxton Hicks. And from what she told me or I observed, these were painful, semi-painful. They were uncomfortable, but they were bearable. At least to me, it seemed that way, right? Easy for me to say that. It seems like these would come and go throughout the pregnancy. But then, as she got really close to the due date, she got more intense contractions that were more frequent and more intense, but they were still somewhat far apart. Then, there were those transition contractions that come right before labor. And I remember watching her, and at least in retrospect, hearing her describe this, how these contractions were repeated and continual with growing levels of intensity. I mean, they were brutal, even to watch from a distance. Couldn't imagine how she felt about all this. Now, all of these continual contractions, as you know, signify that a birth is coming. But you never know exactly when that baby will be born, right? I mean, you could be in labor for a few hours, with a couple of our kids she was, or for a whole day or even two in some cases, being in labor before that baby actually is born. This is the illustration. This is the picture that Jesus wants us to keep in mind as we think about the birth pangs of the end of the age, of the events which culminate in his return in the last days. And so what are these birth pangs that Jesus says will signal the soon return of Christ during the tribulation? We're only going to begin to look at these today, and we'll do part two of these birth pangs next week, okay? If you've been taking notes, Jesus tells us that there will be a time during the tribulation when there will be uncontrolled deception. Uncontrolled deception. Look at verse 5. In answer to their question about the signs of the end of days, Jesus began to say to them, verse 5, see to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. That word misleads has the idea of leading someone astray, of deceiving someone from the right path. And he adds in verse 6, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. By the way, Matthew 24, 5, the parallel account, adds that many will say, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Jesus says there will come a time of shameless, uncontrolled levels of deception. And at the peak of such deception, many will come falsely identifying themselves as me, as the Messiah, as the Christ. And people will worship these individuals. And people will follow their teachings in an uncontrolled manner. These individuals will deceive people unharnessed having no conscience whatsoever and deceiving people and getting people to follow after these guys. Boy, this has always been so, hasn't it, beloved? You say, you know, that kind of describes our day and age. Of course. We see glimpses of this. 
Because this is, these are birth pangs. These are growing signs, if you will, that will culminate in an unparalleled way in the tribulation. But this has always been the case. According to one author, the first guy to claim to be the Messiah was a guy by the name of Barokba. And Barokba was one of the leaders of the final Jewish revolt in A.D. 132. He was a shameful character, deceiving many people, giving many people false hope that he was the Christ. And of course he wasn't. But since that time, up to our day, there have been some 63 or more self-acclaimed messiahs. Individuals who have come to lead people astray. False messiahs, false teachers, charlatans who've been claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. And you would think, well, surely nobody followed after them, right? Hundreds and thousands have followed after these individuals. Led astray by these individuals. Many of these heretics have been very successful. Even in our day and age, just in the, in the last 20 years, there have been at least four different individuals like that who have led many astray and devastated many lives, exploiters of the naive, exploiters of those who understand Scripture, who don't understand Scripture, who are ignorant of Scripture. Even passages like Mark chapter 13. So this is why this is so important, isn't it? We read Mark chapter 13, and you might think in some, at some point in this series, man, these are heavy-duty things, man. Why should I learn if for anything so that you might guard your heart from being led astray by individuals such as these? That you might not be naive, beloved. That you might grow in discernment and the ability to distinguish between what is false and true and those who are really speaking the truth and pointing you to the Word of God, to the Bible. Scripture is clear that even during the present church age, we will get a foretaste, a sampling of such uncontrolled deception. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Such a key text for us as we think about this. And an implication for us even in the present day and age. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13. Speaking of false teachers here, Paul reluctantly is having to defend himself because of accusations from the Corinthian church. And he begins to distinguish, this is who we are. Here are our credentials. Even though I'm reluctant about doing this, let me tell you about why we are the true apostles. And here's a description of the false apostles. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, speaking of false teachers, for such men, Paul says, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if if his, speaking of Satan's servants, also disguise, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. What is Paul saying? Be warned, Corinthians. We are the true apostles. We look at our credentials. Reluctantly, I'm telling you this. But look at these false people, false apostles, so so, so called, who are leading you astray. And they are simply following after the pattern of their key leader, Satan, who has always disguised himself as an angel of light. And we've seen this throughout history. I've been reading a lot of church history lately and seeing this. How Satan again and again and again, always his tactic is to deceive people, to desensitize people to the truth so that we become less and less um, conscientious of what is true or false. And one of the ways that he deceives people is not always just explicitly. There is explicit deception. But his tactic is sometimes the most dangerous of all this deception is that he will sow a little bit of truth with all that falsehood. Or so a little bit of falsehood with a lot of truth, right? Just sprinkling of a little bit of falsehood seasoning. And if we are not growing in discernment, the ability to distinguish between good and evil, between what is good and best, then we are susceptible to such things, right? Also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we read this. Children, and he's speaking, the Apostle John, to his spiritual children... Those who are Christians, he's like a spiritual father to them. We read, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, speaking of a future time, even now, he says, many Antichrists with a little a have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. That's a very interesting text, isn't it? John is saying, 
that as the last hour continues to unfold, many antichrists with a little a have appeared already. As we read church history, we can see some of those individuals. Like the ancient infamous Arius back in the day who attacked the deity of Christ. On the other, on the other hand, John says that the Antichrist with a capital A is still to come, pointing to a future time, to a future time. All this, he says, all these Antichrists appearing is characteristic of the last hour. What is he talking about there by the last hour? He's saying this, that since the time of Christ, since the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we are living, beloved, listen to me, in the last hour, the last days, that season. We know this by, because of passages like Hebrews 1, chapter 1, that says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, speaking of the whole of the Old Testament, okay, some 4,000 years of history, in these last days, he says, has spoken to us in his Son. He says, since the time of Christ, that has ushered in the last hour or the last days. See, God sees time. God is not restricted to time as we are. And he sees time very differently, doesn't he? And so in his mind, from his majestic, glorious perspective, these are the last days. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says this, But the Spirit explicitly says, writes Paul to young Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines or teachings of demons. Notice that he doesn't say of men. He says of demons because that is their source and their origin for false teachers. Don't be so easy on them. The source is demonic teachings, demonic doctrine. That's why faithful pastors and faithful elders and faithful leaders get all bent out of shape because we want to protect you from such individuals. You understand? Because the origin of their teachings, these false teachers who claim to be the Christ and other things, is demonic, demonic, the demonic realm. He says, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and doctrines or teachings of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Just another way of saying that these guys have no sensitivity in conscience anymore. They can't feel what is right or wrong anymore. They are so depraved, so darkened in their understanding that they even have begun to believe the falsehood that they espouse and they don't care about who they lead astray. That's what he's saying. Seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They have no sensitivity to truth anymore. Or to who they hurt and bring down in the process. And so you see on the one hand, because the last 2,000 years fall under the category of the last days or the last hour, the church has tasted deception. But listen to me. This is nothing compared to the uncontrolled deception that will run wild and reckless during this period of time called the tribulation in anticipation of the return of Christ. Wow. This is sobering, isn't it? Comforting for us because we know where we are going, right? Not based upon our own works, but because of the merits of Christ and us trusting in Christ. We can rest in Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen? But sobering because we have loved ones and we have friends and family and people that we've known in our workplaces and other places that have not trusted Christ, who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And as far as from a human perspective, they will experience the wrath of God someday and get a taste of this. So this will be nothing compared to that uncontrolled deception of the tribulation, even what we experience here in this, on this earth. What else does Jesus foretell about the tribulation, this period of unique suffering and devastation? Birth pang number two. He says this will be a period of unparalleled division. Of unparalleled division. Look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus says there's going to come a time when the talk of the town will be constantly the potential of conflict. 
Well, there will be growing, intensifying hatred and hostility. Listen to me, not only amongst individuals, but amongst people, groups, amongst nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. That's what he's saying. Furthermore, these conflicts are not only nation against nation in the sense of geographical locale, physical location, but these conflicts will flow from ethnic racial tensions. These are conflicts caused by racial and socio-political divides. And you say again, Pastor, this sure sounds like today. And you know what? It does. But this is only going to get worse. During the tribulation, it will reach unparalleled proportions, you understand. It will culminate right before the baby is born, i.e. the return of Christ, right? That's his point. Now, it's one thing to divide when the truth is being compromised, This we must do, stand for the truth always. But what this is talking about here is conflict caused by the great idol of me. The me idol. A time of growing self-centeredness. A time of growing selfishness. A time of growing pride amongst people. Well, people will grow less and less concerned with others and taking care of others and more concerned with the great idol of self and self-idolatry. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times or seasons will come. This is speaking of future tense and what we should expect. For men will be lovers of self. That's the great idol of self. Self-idolatry. That's the overarching sin, beloved. Do you understand that? All sin, all sin flows from self-idolatry. Trying to take the place of God rather than fleshing out, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever in this life, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we saw not too long ago in Mark, and instead loving yourself, elevating yourself above God. God created you for Himself, and what have we done because of our sin? We have put ourselves on the throne room of our hearts. That's what we've done. So that's the overarching sin. He says, For men will be lovers of self. And what's the manifestation of that? Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, what a list, isn't it? What a list. And that was written around A.D. 67 or 68, by the way, when that was written. And so if the culture of Paul's day, think about this, was already a proud, self-centered culture, how much more today? How much more today? People are driven to, to conflict, to ongoing hatred and hostility because of what church historian Carl Truman labels the rise of the modern self in a book that he wrote last year. You ought to read that book, by the way. Heavy-duty book, not a book that you want to read and plan on reading in one week, okay? Maybe like a couple of pages a day. It's heavy-duty, but it's a great book because his point is all sin comes from the great idol of worshiping self, including when somebody all of a sudden in our culture, more prevalent, is coming up with statements like, you know what, I feel like a man even though she's a woman, Or when a man says, I feel like a woman, even though he's a man and he's masculine, biologically and in every other way. Where does that come from? From the great idol of self, worshiping self. What a great point. And so conflict, wars, etc. will each will reach unparalleled levels is what Jesus is saying. But we've seen glimpses of this, of course, in the church age. One historian has written this, quote, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. During the times of Napoleon, the Russians felt like the end had come. And during World War II, Christians felt the end had come as well, seeing the devastation of Nazi Germany, end quote. He goes on, but I'll end it there. 
See, people in every single generation, beloved, have always longed for peace because there has hardly ever been any peace. Really, never has there been from the heart. Never has there been. This is why, by the way, sneak peek, why the Antichrist with a capital A, the Antichrist, gains so much momentum, doesn't he? Because people are looking for peace because we've never had it in the world. And people forget about the fact that the only one who could make peace and has already begun that work and is coming back to deliver the final death blow is Jesus, right? Jesus, by virtue of his death on the cross and his resurrection, his glorious ascension has made it possible for you, first of all, to be at peace vertically with God and horizontally then, out of an outflow of that, to be at peace with others so that there isn't conflict like this reigning in your life. Jesus is the answer. The gospel, the good news of the person and the work of Christ, only he can truly establish and will bring peace in the earth sometimes, on the earth one day in the future, you understand. Not the Antichrist or any other little Antichrist with a little A. This is so key for us to get. So So there has always been constant political and social upheavals, division, hatred, hostility, But what Jesus is saying here is, during the tribulation, this will only grow and intensify like birth pangs as the time draws near for the coming of Christ, for the second return of Christ. The Edmund Hebert writes this, quote, Yet these signs do not constitute the immediate sign of the consummation of the age. We're thinking, what? Right? This is it. This should be it. He says, they demonstrate the rotten moral condition of the world, which will certainly lead to judgment, but that is not yet the end, implying that there's more suffering to come. End quote. Third birth pang. Our Lord says that during the tribulation, there will be unprecedented disasters. Unprecedented disasters. Look in the middle of verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places, And there will also be famines. You might say, well, we get earthquakes all the time, Pastor, in Southern California, right? Are they fun? They're not fun at all, right? They're not fun. I remember as a little kid coming from Mexico at the age of seven years old and um, being adopted by my aunt and uncle living in West L.A. at the time. And within the first year of me living with my new family, I mean, things started shaking and there was a 6.8 earthquake in West Los Angeles. I was thinking, man, I want to go back to Mexico. Little did I know later on that Mexico had its own massive earthquake. Mexico City, if you remember at the time. But wow, what a scary thing. What a scary thing. So, yes, we've experienced some of those. But what this emphasizes is that these won't be just occasional or local earthquakes. Regional earthquakes. Listen, these will be continual all at once. And remember the imagery of birth pangs. They become more repeated, more rapid, closer and closer together, more intensified, progressively more and more devastating and wiping out people. That's what we're talking about here. Imagine that. I mean, just this week, someone was visiting with me in my office. They were just catching up on life and all of that. And and all of a sudden, as we're catching up, we felt the the roof above us shaking. And we instantly stopped talking and we looked at each other like, what in the world was that, right? And it was Hugo and the air conditioning guy (laughs) on the roof. So I won't tell you who the other brother is because I just humbled myself before you. And I'm not going to tell you how scared he was, okay? (laughs) But we both got startled. And we looked at each other just because of a little shaking going on above us. Can you imagine this kind of a thing? As startling as it is for one 6.0 earthquake in our Southern California or the Northridge earthquake of 6.7 a few years ago, as tough as that was and as devastating as that was for some people, this is, this, that's nothing compared to this right here. Nothing compared to this. Happening at various locations all at once with great growing levels of, in, of intensity. During the tribulation, people will have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide for refuge and protection. These will not just be local but global things that are taking place. Not just earthly but cosmic. Not just causing some damage but cataclysmic and devastating to people's lives. They won't be able to recover from this. 
Note in verse 8, he adds, there will also be famines. Famines. These have been common, for example, in the Old Testament during the time of Israel and Egypt, as we can read. But here he's talking about worldwide famine. An unprecedented time where people will lack, beloved, the basic needs for life. Those very basic things. And watch this. All of this, as if all of this wasn't enough to cause people to think, you know what, this is surely is the end. He adds in verse 8, these things are merely what? The beginning of birth pangs. Jesus says, you think this is great? That's just a beginning. This is just a beginning. It's only going to get worse during the tribulation. And we'll see that next week. Three first three signs had to do with growing suffering in the world, but next week it gets really, really personal to the type of personal suffering people will also encounter. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. Listen. As you hear about these future events and that they belong to the future tribulation, you may say, Pastor, if these are part of the tribulation, and as our church affirms, and we're going to see this biblically in the next couple of weeks, We will not be here because we are going to be raptured, taken out of this world. Believers will be taken out before this. Then does this passage even apply to us? How does it apply to us? And of course, the answer is yes, it does apply to us by way of implication, doesn't it? You see, everywhere in God's word, there are timeless principles, timeless truths that apply to Christians of all generations. I like how one pastor put it. Since no one but God knows when the tribulation period will occur, he writes, then every generation should live with the expectation that these events could break forth at any time, at any moment. Eminence, which means that something could happen at any time, does not demand that events must happen within a short period of time, but cautions us that they could occur at any time. And that is why these warnings of The nearness of Jesus' coming can apply to any group of Christians in history, 1st century, 21st century, or any other century for that matter. I like that. I like that. Isn't this why Jesus, if you will notice later on in the Olivet Discourse, cautions repeatedly? Cautions us repeatedly. Look at chapter 13, verse 5. See to it that no one misleads you. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard Verse 23, but take heed. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Double whammy there. Verse 35, therefore, in light of these things, be on the alert. Verse 37, what I say to you, disciples, he's speaking specifically first and foremost to his disciples there. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Surely that all in verse 37 would include us, wouldn't it? We're reading God's inspired word. Listen to me. We're going to disagree perhaps through this series on some of the finer details found here. And eschatology, while it is absolutely important and absolutely essential, is not a reason for us to divide, right? We're going to disagree on some things. But we agree on this, don't we? That we need to be resting in Christ even in the present and be on the alert, beloved. That we need to be on guard, even as believers. And that we need to be resolved to mission. To be proclaiming Christ to people who don't know Christ. And hear me, on that note, one of the massive implications for those of you who are here physically, or even listening, tuning in online, is that if you don't know Christ, you especially need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. So can I ask you directly right now, What will happen to your soul if you were to die today? If you were to leave this building and you were to have a car accident, a fatal car accident, where would your soul go? For the believer, for the Christian who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, it says, the Word of God says that to be absent from the body is to be present with who? With the Lord. That's true for Christians, not true for non-believers. If you have not put your trust in Christ, where would your soul go? Where would you spend eternity? Would it be with God, your creator in heaven, enjoying him forever and ever and ever? 
Or would it be in a real, physical place called hell? Where there's eternal torment. Because you rejected God's provision of salvation from your sins found in Jesus Christ alone. You see, the, the Bible says that God's wor- God is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but that He is patient toward all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So my friend, listen to me. If you're here today, know that God's beloved Son came into the world to live the perfect life that you should, have, you should live but cannot live. We are sinners by nature from the womb. We are by nature children of wrath from the womb. And we only live our life and manifest that in a self-idolatry and self-centered living rather than glorifying God and enjoying Him. We are sinners from the very womb. But Jesus came into the world to live the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live. He died on the cross of Calvary to die and pay for sins. And He rose again, conquering sin and death. Jesus is the good news to sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. He is the gospel. He is the good news. It's all about Christ, exalting Christ, because of the fact that He is our merciful Savior. who died for our sins on the cross. Listen to me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Don't wait any longer. Tomorrow may be too late. Trust Him. Embrace God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And for those of us, beloved, who have trusted in Christ, how wonderful it is that even though these are sobering things that we read here that Jesus is outlining, and we're going to continue to walk through this and see so many other eye-opening things that He outlines here. Even though we read these things, isn't it amazing that we can rest in Christ no matter what? No matter what happens in the world. It isn't based upon our own merits. And no matter how bad the world gets, and every single day we get those news about how even nation against nation and the tensions going on in the Middle East, isn't it wonderful and amazing that we can rest in Christ based upon His merits and not our own? Amen? Amen. Live with that sense of hope. Even as our brother read 1 Thessalonians 4 earlier, therefore comfort one another with these things. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, what sobering words that remind us of the cosmic cataclysmic events of the tribulation. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, that you have given us great hope. That no matter what happens in this world or in the future, Lord, we will be with you. Father, thank you for that great reality through your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would also be catapulted, even as we read these words, these serious things that will befall the world, that we would all the more be fueled in our hearts to be on mission, to be about the Great Commission, making disciples. Lord, help us to be zealous for the souls of people. Help us to repent of our complacency to repent even of our self-righteous critical spirits, oftentimes as we see what's happening in the world around us. That doesn't drive us to love our neighbor by proclaiming Christ the good news and seeing people come to faith in Him. Father, help us, fuel us in our hearts to have a greater love for You as we read these passages and a greater love for the world that desperately needs to know about Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.